Good morning, everyone. Um, the reason I'm tired is not because of all that happened last year, but because Brandon and I stayed up till like midnight yesterday, <laughs> just having some really rich and robust conversations. Uh, if you don't know, and I hope you already do, and I'm sure you do, which is why you're here, you're, you're led by an incredible pastor and someone who loves the Lord deeply, who loves the church deeply, who loves all of you deeply, and who loves the, the kingdom of God deeply. And so... I'm grateful for his ministry and for the invitation to be with you, to, to be entrusted with, with the pulpit this morning. Uh, he did mention that there seems to be some people here from Wheaton. Anyone have, uh, anyone graduate from Wheaton? Just curious. Have friends who graduated from Wheaton? All right, good, all right. We're all family, that's great to see. Um, well, I know that you're in the book of Acts, and so one of the things I wanted to do was encourage you in your journey through the book by helping you see a significant movement throughout the text. And so if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And if you can open your Bibles, uh, we're going to be reading from Acts 16, 6 to 15. The, the primary launch point for our time together will be out of Acts 16, but, but we'll move throughout a large segment of the book together. So Acts 16, verse 6. To 15. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him. Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat there and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thuateron, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you already might know, um, Acts is the second volume in a two-part series following the gospel according to Luke. As Luke transitions from talking about the ministry of Jesus as one who enters into the suffering of the world through word, sign, and deed, giving particular attention to the most disenfranchised, then being crucified on the cross and rising from the dead three days later to overcome sin and death, Acts then is a record of how the good news of Jesus spreads through human activity energized by the Holy Spirit. Acts is a book about what God is doing in the world in and through the, his believers and, and, and how believers are invited into his work through the power of his Holy Spirit. 
What you see in the book of Acts is a movement following the Great Commission to to make disciples of all nations. The blueprint for gospel movement is found in Acts 1-8 where you read, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's, it's, a, it's a verse that everyone who's a Christian is, and has been a part of the Christian faith for a while should be familiar with. But all throughout the book of Acts, we see how the gospel is constantly moving outwards. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, we see a movement of the gospel that, that takes root in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 to 6, chapters 1 to 6, then in Judea and Samaria from chapter 7 to 9, and then we see how, the, how this mission to the ends of the earth begins in chapter 10 as it goes out towards the Gentile nations. For example, as you just saw last week in Acts 2, you see clear evidence through the Pentecost move, moment that the gospel is for all people. It was not intended to be held captive by, by any single community. It's not a gospel that says, it's, that, 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 that says it is only for you if you become just like us. Instead, it's a gospel that, that says it's for you and it'll show up through your socio-cultural positionality. As we see how everyone was hearing and speaking the gospel in their native tongues. And we'll get into this a little more later. As the gospel moves outward, we see how that movement constantly demands adjustments, major adjustments, by those who are a part of those who would consider themselves a part of the center. For example, as you'll later see in Acts 6, uh, when, when Brandon preaches through it, uh, as the church was growing, the Hellenistic Jews complained that their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food by the Hebraic Jews. Uh, it's important to note that both communities, both the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews, were Jewish One happened to be homegrown, while the other was part of the diaspora. As these concerns, however, of discrimination and neglect around food distribution were raised and continued to grow, it actually required a significant structural change to be made. And as the gospel expanded and moved outward from the Hebraic Jews to include Hellenistic Jews, and as the most vulnerable among the group... uh, uh, the, as the widows were oftentimes the most vulnerable, were facing discrimination and neglect, the, they actually made some significant structural changes by appointing deacons, all of whom likely came from the more marginalized Hellenist group as they all possessed Greek names, were charged with a fair and equitable uh, distribution of food to all. So they were charged with the, with the mission to distribute food to all people equitably. And what we see throughout the book of Acts is that the gospel is constantly moving outwards. And as it moves outwards, it it is forcing those who find themselves, as I said earlier, at the center to change by centering those who are in the margins. Our passage today in Acts 16 occurs during Paul's second missionary journey. And Acts 16 comes on the heels of one of the most pivotal moments in the book of Acts. Now, I believe every moment in the book of Acts is important. This is especially true when you, when you come to the realization that the book of Acts covers nearly 30 years of early church history. So as you read the book of Acts, know that you're able to journey through 30 years of history in the span of just 28 chapters. But there's something special about what happens in Acts 15, which is important for us to keep in mind as we explore our passage today. 
In Acts 15, we'll see what could be argued as the first council of the church, or the first church council. Around the year 8050, church leaders got together to discuss issues connected to the Christian faith and the Christian practice, which includes both doctrine and duty, principle and practice, and theology and praxis. The question they wrestled with is, do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised in order to be saved? The question they were asked, essentially asking was, did Gentile converts need to assimilate into their, and, and adopt Jewish customs before they could be considered fully Christian? Some within the church argued in the affirmative, while Paul and Barnabas, among others, sharply disagreed. And the reason for their disagreement? They were seeing the gospel bear significant fruit among the Gentiles without such assimilation. They were actually seeing people come to a living and robust and spirit-filled faith in line with the teachings of Jesus. So at this council, they wrestled with whether Gentile conversion necessitated assimilation to Jewish customs. They, they debated whether following Jesus required people to become Jewish first. All this is they were navigating what it meant to be a, a kingdom people that were set apart for God in the most powerful empire in the world. Just reading this passage, you can actually picture the intensity of the debate that actually might put the musical Hamilton to shame. In fact, someone should really tell Lin-Manuel Miranda to, to make a musical about the early church as he'd have a lot of good material to draw from. But it is during the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that they, they determined that the Gentiles would not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And at the heart of the debate, as, as, as they were wrestling with whether Gentiles needed to become Jewish in custom and practice or to assimilate the, into Jewish culture in order for them to receive the gospel in full, the clear answer was no. Then as Paul and Silas embark on their missionary journey, their second missionary journey, they encounter Timothy in Acts 16. You might know Timothy as Paul's apprentice and protege to whom the epistles of Timothy were written. And what you see is that Timothy was highly regarded, as we see in, the verses, as we see in verses 1 and 2 of Acts 16. Believers spoke highly of him, it says. He was so well regarded that Paul and Silas invited, them, invited him to join them on their journey. What's interesting is that we also see that he was born to a Jewish mother and a Greek father. For Luke to include this detail about Timothy's bi-ethnic identity is not something to breeze past. In fact, when you encounter a detail like this, it's actually worth pausing to ask why the author would spend precious ink and parchment to include it. For, for those of you who are bi or multi-ethnic, mixed culture, uh, multicultural, mixed race, and hold a variety of ethnic and cultural identities within you, including those of you who are hyphenated Americans, MKs, TCKs, or cross-ethnic, cross-racial, transnational, or transracial adoptees, the inclusion of Timothy's ethnic and cultural heritage should and can be of great encouragement to you. Timothy's encouragement, or Timothy's uh, ethnic identity actually reveals, as Willie Jennings says, that through the Spirit, nothing is lost, but other things are added. It is possible for Timothy to love the Gentiles of his father and the Jews of his mother 
and with both and through both and in both to perform his commitment to Jesus. This is the love of the Christian. We can inhabit new cultural sites of love, different languages, different holy gestures, different customs and rituals, love life, and perform through the Spirit a deepening love for the world and a love for Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Such love presents no competition and no conflicted loyalties. It actually only gestures overwhelming addition. If any of you have ever felt like you've never really belonged anywhere, or you felt like you've had to hide or, or, or erase a part of yourself, or of your ethnic or cultural identity in order to fit in somewhere, or if you've ever been asked, what are you? Because you don't squarely fit in neatly with, with the, the problematic racialized categories of the world that have been imposed on you. Know that God has worked something into you that something that's so special that he intends to activate for the sake of the kingdom and that your gifts and your personhood are essential to the church. You are a beloved child of God, made in his image, with a unique story and a unique heritage that we are not to depart from. In the person of Timothy, we, we see how the gospel works its way in and through and out of the socio-cultural locations of each believer, so that one people group cannot maintain an exclusive claim to the kingdom and, and all of its particular expressions. And all throughout the book of Acts, we see how the love that God has shown for Israel moves into the whole world through the perfect work of Jesus, activated by the Holy Spirit, and expressed in and through the variety of ethnicities and cultures that the people of God emerge from. In fact, this is what the church ought to be, isn't it? The church ought to look like a preview of God's eternal kingdom, a vision of community that celebrates the God-honoring differences in harmony and love and sacrifice. And it's upon this backdrop that we actually arrive at our passage today in Acts 16. In verses 6 to 10, we see how the Holy Spirit continues to draw Paul and Silas and Timothy into the work that, that God is doing in the world. As they travel through the province of Asia, which is not to be confused with the continent of Asia as we know it today, the Spirit of God restrained them from preaching the word in the places where the gospel had already taken root. In many ways, God was calling them beyond what they had found comfortable in order for them to participate in a work that he was doing beyond what they were familiar with. So they continued towards Macedonia, skipping over all these places that the gospel had already taken root as Paul was being led by a vision. When they arrived in Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia, they, they stayed there for several days. And as we see in verse 13, they went outside the city gate to the river on the Sabbath, expecting, expecting to find a place of prayer or a synagogue. But instead of a synagogue... They find a group of women gathered together. One of those women happened to be Lydia from the city of Thuaterone, a, a city in the province of Asia, and, and she was a dealer in purple cloth. Acts 16.14 describes Lydia as a worshiper of God. 
And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, uh, as, as they were speaking to her, uh, and as they were speaking to the women that were gathered, we see that the Lord opened her heart to the gospel message that was being shared. And as it is with the baptism of Cornelius and his household, as you'll see in Acts chapter 10, where Peter had to wrestle with whether he truly believed that the gospel was for all people, including Gentiles, upon the baptism of Lydia and her household and the subsequent invitation into her home, Paul had to actually do some soul searching. He had to search his own soul to see whether he truly believed that he had articulated, that everything that he had articulated at the Jerusalem Council, that the gospel belonged to no singular tribe, no singular nation or tongue, but was for all people, would work in all people, and could work through all people, including Gentile women. Now at this, we should pause. You see, to the readers of the first century, it would have been shocking to see women as the first converts in what we now know as Europe. In the same way that it was shocking to include the testimonies of women who were the first to bear witness to Jesus' resurrection, it made very little sense to, to report that women were among the earliest converts if one wanted to give credence to a message or a movement in ancient times. Women were stripped of such legal and societal credibility that they weren't even allowed to testify in court. Yet in the scriptures, we see how God is constantly challenging the established social codes and some of the religious codes often imposed on, on those considered ethnic outsiders and women, which, of which Lydia was both. Both of the social markers that, that she carried were minoritized and discriminated against, and, against by the Jews. In fact, there was a common prayer that many Jewish rabbis would pray that went like this. Blessed art thou, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. They prayed this because Gentiles, slaves, and women were, at best, viewed and treated as second-class citizens. One of the things that we see over and over in the Bible is that God is constantly elevating those considered ethnic outsiders, women, the poor and those with disabilities, see how many people Jesus healed when he could have just ignored them, above the ways that the surrounding cultures and even his own community, or even his own covenant people viewed and treated them. And the record of Lydia and her household's conversion makes it very clear that God was not just interested in a geographic movement but also a social and religious movement of the gospel, a movement that broke through and dismantled the ungodly hierarchies created along lines like race, gender, class, and ability as we see it today. This is why the record of Lydia's conversion and her subsequent invitation to Paul, Silas, and Timothy in verse 15 saying, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. It's such a significant invitation. This invitation was both the right response by Lydia, but also a response that tested Paul's own gospel commitments. As I mentioned earlier, in many ways, Lydia is to Paul what Cornelius was to Peter. Peter's encounter with Cornelius was significant because it forced Peter to demonstrate that he truly believed that the gospel was for all nations. For 
Peter to enter into the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, and to baptize him in his household meant that Peter would have had to view him as an equal. But this was difficult for Peter as he had inherited attitudes, perceptions, and beliefs that led him to believe in his ethnic and cultural superiority over Gentiles. Peter had to contend with the fact that the gospel was calling him towards a radical inclusion and a radical fellowship with those his upbringing would have considered unclean and beneath him. This wasn't easy for him to do. In fact, despite having walked, for, walked with Jesus for years and seeing Jesus interact with the societal others, like the woman at the well in Samaria, Peter still struggled to expunge himself and, uh, of his own ethnocentrism and his cultural bigotry. This is why in Galatians 2, even after Peter's ministry was well underway, Paul publicly rebuked Peter as he failed to live out the gospel by refusing to enter into table fellowship with Gentile Christians and include them as full members of the household of faith. Thankfully, however, Peter comes to his senses, repents, and sees how the gospel breaks through systemic barriers that the social hierarchies and the religious hierarchies created which is why he ultimately enters into fellowship with Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10. But for Paul, who already demonstrated a commitment to Gentile inclusion at the invitation of Lydia, a Gentile woman who might have even, even been a slave at one point, his own biases, attitudes, and perceptions about the societal other was being tested here. We know this because in verse 15, we see that Lydia had to persuade them against their natural inclinations. What we see in Lydia's invitation is a litmus test or a case study for whether the conclusions drawn during the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was going to be a public statement that actually had teeth or would ultimately serve as empty words and mere lip service. There's no longer a question about what, about what Paul had said he believed, but whether... His belief had legs. At her request, Lydia was exercising her gospel convictions and calling Paul to exercise his. You see, table fellowship often indicated who held a similar status to one another. Who you entered into table fellowship with often defined your social standing in the community. Those who were clean were not able to defile themselves with those who were unclean. Those who were of a higher class were not, were not to associate themselves with those of a lower class. And more often than not, it shows up in the ways that the most vulnerable in any given society experience the world and experience the community. This is why it's so difficult for Peter to dine with Gentiles. Association was everything. And in this passage, we see a prominent theme that occurs in Luke's writings, that, that gospel faith and true Christian hospita hospitality go hand in hand. We have to remember that entering into fellowship with people who are unclean or, or, or that were considered unclean or considered of a lower social status was considered a huge no-no. 
Right? This is why Jesus' ministry was so controversial as he ate with tax collectors, visited with lepers, fellowship with women, engaged with Samaritans, and was constantly in proximity to those who were considered unclean. What the disciples learned was that the gospel turned the values of the world on its head and challenged the existing social and religious structures. And one of the primary ways that it did that was through the practice of radical hospitality. Too many, today, too many people have a misunderstanding of hospitality as it was practiced in the Christian tradition. Too many people have a diluted understanding of what hospitality is. Hospitality emerges from the, the Greek word philoxenia, which derives from two words, philos and xenos. Philos means love. Xenos means stranger. The word xenophobia comes from the words stranger and fear. You all know xenophobia. In many ways, xenophobia is the opposite of that which hospitality calls us to. Instead of fearing or hating or distancing ourselves from the stranger, a commitment to hospitality is a commitment to loving the stranger. Thus, hospitality emerges from a commitment to loving those who are considered the other. It's not merely entertaining or hosting dinner parties, or even making space in your home for other people for a few nights, as people often think. But it's actually an openness to having your life and your space and your rhythms be invaded by inconvenience from those you may not have naturally been drawn to. It's easy to be hospitable to people that you like. Christian hospitality, however, is tested when the other isn't your cup of tea. In fact, this is what Christian community is, isn't it? It's a compilation of odd and funny characters that you might not choose to be in fellowship with. But we are called to be in fellowship with one another because of our shared commitments in Christ. Hospitality is essentially love in action. It's both a, an individual and a communal endeavor. It's a practical outworking of love for others. It's not merely good intentions, but a radical shift in one's life and, and community to make room and, and cultivate spaces for the sake of each other. Its primary disposition is, is one that actually embraces a discomfort and a disadvantage of oneself for the benefit of others, especially those who are in the margins. And it often means that you absorb the pains of the others for the sake of their flourishing. As different people come in with different needs and requirements, embedded in a commitment of hospitality or to hospitality is a commitment to structural and systemic change. As those sitting around the table change and the table expands, so must the table itself continue to change. Far too many people wrongly see hospitality as merely adding chairs to the end of the table and then primarily inviting people who are just like them to the seats. Biblical hospitality is one where people are willing not just to rearrange the seats, but to rearrange the entire room for the sake of others and to invite those who are different into that room. Think about what it requires for people with disabilities or people who are in a wheelchair to enter into buildings that were made a hundred years ago that have stairs and have narrow hallways and how difficult it is for them to navigate. You need to restructure the entire room so that they can flourish. 
At the heart of this hospitality is actually a disposition and a practice of centering the other, especially the other that is constantly pushed towards the edges. <coughs> and for the Christian, the hospitality among believers leads enemies to be transformed into friends and strangers to be transformed into family. My friend Joshua Jipp is a New Testament professor at Trinity uh, and a friend who is exceedingly helpful as I prepared to preach today. Uh, and in, that, in a book that he writes, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, he writes these words. God's hospitality towards us demands that God's people, that's God's people, be a welcoming hospita hospitality community towards one another. It's a communal endeavor. But what we see in this episode in Acts 16 is also an aspect of hospitality that's not often explored. When we think of hospitality, we often think of hospitality from the position of the host where we can ultimately be in control over the menu and the guest list and the conversation and the amount of time we spend together. However, here, Paul is invited to be the guest. And one's willingness to Assume the role as a guest is as much a Christian response as any other. It's to receive the gifts of others. For the Christian, hospitality is often expressed in a dance between guest and host, between being the host and being the guest. And in that dance, each party is constantly bringing their full selves to the table and actively seeking to center each other. But they're all working together to centers those who are oftentimes the most disenfranchised. For Paul to accept the invitation from Lydia was his willingness to allow the cultural center of Christian faith expression to shift from a Jewish one to a Gentile one. In fact, anytime you see efforts to expand and shift the cultural center so that it's more inclusive, you'll actually find biblical hospitality at work. People push to shift the cultural center so that a fuller picture of the gospel community can be portrayed. But not only did Paul have to exercise his convictions that the gospel was for Gentiles, and more specifically for Gentile women, he also had to decide whether he would allow the gospel to reorder his cultural and pre-diagnosed and prescribed religious commitments. And this is something that all of us needs to determine it well. He needs to deter need to determine as well. You see, for Paul to accept this invitation means that he would be going from the position of being the giver to being the, in the position of being the receiver. He taught Lydia. He shared the gospel with her. But here was Lydia extending through her Christian faith out of her sociocultural location, an invitation of hospitality to them, one that challenged the existing social orders of the day. This is what we see all throughout Scripture. The ones who had been in, accustomed to being in control and to have their preferences centered and, and to being in power are often asked to, to relinquish it, following the ways of a kenotic or a self-emptying or self-sacrificing Jesus Christ. And those who have become accustomed to the, to the edges and the margins are often elevated to the positions where they are able to actually set the table as well. And it is in this mutual submission 
that the body of Christ grows, and, and with Christ as the cornerstone, the entire body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, as we see in Ephesians 2. True Christian hospitality does not demand that one become Jewish in order to be accepted as a full member of the Christian community. It's that true Christian hospitality finds a way to enter into the dance of being a host and a guest, emphasizing one at times and another at other times, while always looking at the edges together as a community. But as it, at its core, it's the practice of expanding the, the table and even rearranging the room that is at the heart of Christian hospitality. And as we look at the life of Jesus, who's expansive table was extended to us and all the ways that he entered into the brokenness of the world giving special attention to the most marginalized through a costly sacrifice that that required him to rearrange the entire universe through his death and resurrection so that we can enter into fellowship with him we too can follow his ways as we bear witness to his name amen let us pray. Lord, we come before you thankful that we can worship together on this holy day. We thank you that we are called to be a community that practices radical hospitality because you have demonstrated and extended that hospitality to us. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this community. Bless Brandon and the other staff members here who I am sure are exhausted from dealing with all the trials of the pandemic. Pray, Lord, that you would nourish them and the elders of this community. I pray for the members of the community that they would be of one mind and one heart and one spirit and one love as they press into and center those in the margins and ask themselves as a community, what would it take to look like a, like a community that, that, that rearranges itself for those who are most disenfranchised among us? We, we praise you for who you are and for all that you've done, and we ask that your name would be glorified in and through our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.